Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can draw near to you as your kids. We know that we're nothing near the quality and consistency of our older brother, but we thank you that in him we have experienced grace and cleansing, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and we would be very eager to learn, uh, to unlearn stuff that we have believed that is not true and to embrace those things that are true and set us free. So, Father, please come and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I uh, read an interesting question um, this week that I, being a superficial person, I just went, oh, that's an interesting question, went past. And I, no, I should probably stop and think about that. And the question was this. Uh, if you knew that within 24 hours you would be dead, what would you do in those 24 hours, do you think? It's an interesting, what, what would we do, what would you do if you had 24 hours and you knew that by this time tomorrow uh, your body would be in a morgue somewhere and people would be weeping? Uh, I, I thought about things. Um, I'm a bit of a paperwork king and... Um, so I would need to get a bit of paper and finish it. Um, I've never quite got around to finishing my will, so that would be helpful. So I thought I'd, I'd like to get that done, see a lawyer, get it signed, and then get on to other things. It helps you distinguish between the things that are important and the things that are urgent, what really matters. Now, at the point that we see Jesus in John 13, and we'll be here for the next couple of weeks, he knows that he'll be dead in less than 24 hours. His friends, the disciples, know that something ominous is happening. They can sense it. It's like the heaviness before a storm sometimes. They could just feel it. And, but Jesus knows exactly what's happening. And he knows that he will be dead soon. And it will be a terrible death. So what's he going to do in the next 24 hours? Well, we're going to see over the next weeks the things that he says to his friends, the disciples. Chapters 1 to 12, he's got some one-on-one -on -one conversations, but it's basically in public. The passage that we heard read so well for us, um, it's the last thing Jesus does in public, apart from die. But now he's going to teach his friends, his disciples, are the ones kind of in whose place we sort of stand. We trust and follow him. What's he going to say to them? What's the really important stuff? And as you heard, the first thing he does is do something rather than say something. This is the longest piece of teaching in the Gospels from Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John have all got various lumps of Jesus' teaching. But this one, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and then the prayer in chapter 17, it's the longest single bit of Jesus' teaching. So we're going to look at to who did what to who. Then um, what Peter said and what Peter learnt. And thirdly, what Christians do and why. Hope that's going to be helpful. I actually had originally seven points, so that's, this is an abbreviation. Uh, there will be a Q&A at the end, a brief Q&A, straight at the end of the sermon tonight. All right. Who did what to who? And I thought we would use, as a sort of a bit of a guide for our thinking, just, uh, just gently, the, the model that we're suggesting and that I know many of you have picked up in our Bible readings together, uh, the SOAP method. So we each, there's a section, there's a little book that you can pick up outside that looks like this that explains the method and inside it has a sheet of suggested Bible passages. So part of the fun is you're reading the same passages as other brothers and sisters in church and when you get together you might be able to share your insights. But here's the model that we're using. You read the passage, 
Then you note down a particular scripture that you think is central for you from that section. Then you note down observations. Then you just write down observations about perhaps where that particular verse fits, what's happening around it, who's saying what. Observations and then applications. That is, what does this mean for me? It's not self-centered, but it's just asking, what, is, what would happen if I took this seriously? The application. And lastly, and this for some of us is fairly newish, is writing a prayer to Christ, to God the Father, in direct response to what we've just read. So turn it into conversation and dialogue. And a number of us write it out first and then go back and pray it. And I was talking with a brother earlier this week and he was saying that what he did the other day was he went through his little booklet he's got and prayed a few of the prayers and found that really quite helpful, the prayers from what he'd learnt as he read through this, this uh, passage. So we're going to use this rough method occasionally in this section. Now this is one of the many pictures. Did you notice what's different with this picture and what was one of the strengths of that video that we just watched? What's wrong with that picture? Apart, I mean, what's right is Jesus is a redhead, which is terrific to hear. Because when I was healthy, I was a redhead. It's the next evolutionary step up. Um, so it's good to see Jesus has got with the program. Um, by the way, we don't know what colour his hair was. but that's, So what do you notice is different in this painting with what you just heard read? Yeah. He's clothed. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the shocking things now is where Jesus, you know, you think he's going to get completely naked, but he's got his underpants on. Right? In almost all the artworks, I mean, this is, if, if that's your underclothes, they're pretty fancy looking underclothes. But he does, he strips down to the position of a slave or a servant. It would have been shocking. That, that was a much more modest society, that society than ours. Very rare for a distinguished person as Jesus was, the leader of the pack in that group. Uh, one of the things I do like about this painting is this guy here. I don't know if you can... This bloke here. There you can see him. You can hardly believe what's going on. So who did what to who here? Well, let's have a look at... If we just use perhaps verse 5, part of verse 5, as the key thing in that first uh, section. Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet. Now, if you read it, it says he... But it's clearly talking about Jesus. So I thought it'd be clear if we just put who it is. Jesus. Now you can read this in, in a number of different ways that would be quite good to camp on. Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet. 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 Uh, all significant points of emphasis helping us to see what's going on. Who did what to who? Well, Jesus did something to the disciples. But the significance of that is who Jesus is and who the disciples are and aren't. Let me read you verses, bits and pieces from verses 1 to 3, which sort of paints the very important, significant background to this action. It was just before the Passover festival. So that's the time. So it's, the, it's, it's actually the night before the Passover, which was one of the hugest of the Old Testament and Jewish celebrations, where they celebrate the great rescue from Egypt through the shedding of the blood of the lamb. And then the, the angel of death went over the house where the blood of the lamb had been over the lintel. And that's why Jesus is called the Lamb of God. It's the new Passover. It was just before the Passover festival. Now, Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. From chapter 2 on, he's talking about my, my hour has not yet come, my hour will come, my hour will come. Chapter 12, things happen that he says, right, now the hour has come. So he knows that the hour of his death has come. 
He's been heading towards this for quite a while. Early on in the Gospels, they begin to plan his death. Now, I've, I've had moments in my life of somewhat stress and pressure, but I've never lived in a situation where the governing officials were seeking my death and murder. Jesus lived with that for some time. He knows he's about to die uh, at the same time as the Passover lambs are about to die. It was time to leave the world. And then a beautiful statement, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. And at this moment, the disciples are not doing well, right? They've not just had a series where they've played a hero's game. They're awful. Uh, it's, it's even worse in the other Gospels, where Jesus sets up the Lord's Supper and in, in, in Luke and things like that. As soon as Jesus sets up the Lord's Supper about his death and shedding his blood, they argue about who's the greatest and who's the best. I mean, it's just revolting, really. Lucky none of us are like them. We're a whole class better. Ha, ha, ha. But what it just wants to understand, Jesus not only knows this is his time, but he loves the disciples. He loves this bunch of rat bags he's got. And he loves them to the uttermost. That is, it, it, it's a very strong sense. He, he couldn't love them more. Right? It's both acute and chronic. It's ongoing and it's intense is his love, which is the same love that he has for me and for you. So if you were to go from here and have a you know, hundred years of perfect obedience to God and generous living for God, he would not love you one scrap more than he loves you now. Right? He loves you already to the absolute uttermost. And he's going to show that, that within 24 hours he will have died and gone to hell for us. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. We'll look at that more uh, next week. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power He'd come from God and was returning to God. This is the way Jesus often speaks of himself. In fact, he contrasts his life sort of uh, picture from ours. He says, you are of the earth. He says, I've come from God and I'm returning to God. Now, what he does is he offers to pick us up and take us with him rather than us just returning downward. But he's very clear. He's come from the Father. He's about to return to the Father. And he knows all this. And he knows also that the Father has put all things under his hand. Right? The furthest ends of the universe, Jesus Christ is Lord of every atom you'll find there. He is, it, it, it is a most extraordinary claim made of or about or by no one else on the planet has claimed such an outrageous power as Jesus clearly thinks he has. So Jesus is not suffering from low self-esteem. Right? He has a massively high view of who he is because he has a massively high reality. And he's about to do the lowliest, most slave-like thing imaginable, not because he thinks, oh, I'm pretty crap, so perhaps I should do this. No, 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 no. He knows exactly who he is, and he knows who he's doing it to. Who does what? It's that person. And then in the contrast is the very next verse. He knew he'd come from God and was returning to God. Verse 4, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now, the... The verbs in this section are all in the present tense, which is odd because this happened in the past. It's, it's something which writers still do, but they certainly then If something was remarkably vivid, it's as if John is watching it again. This, this would have been a, a really chilling moment to watch what Jesus did here. would have been absolutely unforgettable. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist... After he'd poured water into a basin and began to wash, he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
Jesus begins to wash the disciples' feet. Obviously, when whoever it was, the disciples prepared for the, the Passover meal that they were eating, they prepared the, the basin, the jug of water, and the towel. They forgot to organise someone to do it. Because what happened in that sort of culture was, no matter how fantastic the Roman roads were, and they were, and still are many of them, you can still see them, they're amazing bits of engineering. When you walked along them with your sandals, dust and dung. They didn't have a problem with air pollution from sort of, you know, engines like we have. All the means of transport apart from human legs, camels, horses, donkeys, lots of cattle use the roads. They have a tendency to not be well toilet trained and they just drop it wherever they feel it. So the combination of dust and dung means that your feet got pretty fruity. And the way that they ate in those days, unlike us, they, we, your legs were closer to other people's heads in the way that they reclined at tables. So you had to have someone, normally a slave or a lowly desperate servant who would be employed for that purpose. But somehow or other, the meal had started and no one had washed anyone's feet. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus gets up and it would have been done in complete silence as people watched him get up, tried to work out what he's doing. Um, he goes across to the table where that stuff is and undresses, wraps himself around with a towel. And they had a special name for this towel that was ready for the slaves. It was very long so you could wrap it around yourself and also had spare towel to do people's feet. And went up to the disciples and began to wash their feet. Now this is just ridiculous. Uh, we have thousands of pages of writings from the Romans, the, the Greeks and the Jews from this period. And there is not one case where someone who would be seen as the leader of the pack or the superior would ever wash the feet of someone who was you know, a disciple or a learner. Not one. It's ridiculous. Doesn't happen. In, in a sense, it shouldn't happen. See, the disciples wouldn't even wash each other's feet. And even because you know what happens in the story, even when Jesus is, is doing it, none of them get up and say, oh, I'll do your feet, Jesus. This isn't right. None of them think they should do his feet. John the Baptist says of Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, that's a step back from washing dung and dusty feet and sweaty feet. What is Jesus doing? He's doing something which he shouldn't do. It's, it's, it's the lowest slave's job. I wonder if you think of Jesus Christ as your slave or your servant. Most Christians would object to that very strongly. He's not our servant. We're his servants. He's the Lord and the master. As he says later, I'm your Lord and teacher. Do you think of him as your... Because this is the position of the slave. This is doing something which in a sense didn't have to be done, but would have made it much nicer for everyone if he did it. But he does it anyhow. Jesus kneels at the feet of his disciples and takes the lowliest position to do for them what they would not do for each other and probably would not do for him. We know amongst the instructions and rules for the, for the way that Jewish rabbis function with their disciples, the, if you became a disciple of a teacher, all sorts of things could be rightly expected of you. But one thing that was explicitly written down is you do not have to untie his sandals or wash his feet just in case there was any doubt. The way it would work in families sometimes, and this is terrible abuse, the youngest in the family would have to do it for the rest of the family, which is ridiculous because we're the best in the family. But 
Apparently, not all societies see that. Um, but certainly, or sometimes a Gentile slave, if you had a slave who wasn't a fellow Jew, a fellow Jew you couldn't ask to do this. this I won't go on, but you see, this is just, it just shouldn't be done. Because Jesus is the servant. There's a song that we're not going to sing, um, but it has these beautiful words. Kneels at the feet of his friends, silently washes their feet, the master who acts as a slave to them. And there's another beautiful hymn, Meekness and Majesty, about the glory and yet the lowliness of Jesus, that talks about meekness and majesty. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. It is extraordinary. There's, there's really nothing like this anywhere of someone doing this, and certainly not someone who owned the universe. Who did what to who? Well, that's what happened. These little pictures are better than most of the famous paintings by great artists because that guy looks like a, you know, he looks sort of slavish, doesn't he? Half-dressed with a towel. And this one I like is actually a kid's picture. But the beauty of it is I think it gets a sense of the shock and the horror uh, which we saw in that particular guy in the back of Jesus uh, doing it there. So that's the first thing. Who did what to who? Right. The servant king, which is a phrase Christians use of Jesus rightly. He is the king, the great king, the Lord of glory, but he is the servant king. That's who he is. Secondly, Peter said what and learnt what? So the key verse I'd want to put here is perhaps verse 8. This, this is an extraordinary interchange. And I want you to imagine you're in the room. Imagine you're one of the disciples and Jesus either washed your feet or he's coming to you after he's done Peter's feet. Listen to what this interchange. One of the interesting things I think with all the Gospels is you get people like Peter and across the four Gospels, despite their differences, he is the same personality type in, in them all. Passionate, warm-hearted, stupid, arrogant, but willing to be corrected. And he is basically infallible. He gets it right on about the 10th time. So he's, he's, a, he's a good fellow. It's exactly the same with Mary and Martha. We meet Mary and Martha in Luke's gospel. They're picked up in John's gospel. It's identical. Different words used to describe the personalities. It's, uh, it's honest reporting. Verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Well, that's, that's a good question. Although in, in the original it's even a little bit stronger because he, he puts, it puts the, what are they called, Personal pronouns. Are you, are, are you, my feet, going to wash? So the language pushes the you, my feet. Is that what you're going to do? You, me, feet, wash. Jesus says, I don't know what you think at this point. If you're one of the disciples, you're thinking, come on, Peter, just shut up like the rest of us. Right? You know, Jesus might be having an episode. He might be having a breakdown. He might have just forgotten what everybody knows. Um, but just behave. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, thank goodness, thank goodness, someone's saying something. I don't know what you would have thought. I'd have been in the second camp. Jesus replied, you do not realise, you do not know what I'm doing, but later you will understand. So Jesus says, look, you don't know what I'm doing, you don't understand what I'm doing, but you will later. So he calm down, just relax. The interesting thing with Peter is, so often he shows... Humility, he sees the incongruence of Jesus washing his feet, but he's so arrogant at the same time, within a split second, you've got real insight and humility and just terrible arrogance. 
You don't realise what I'm doing? Lady, you'll understand. Okay, sit back, shut up and just listen. Peter's response. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. And again, you can hardly put this stronger than the original language. No, no. Which, unlike English, where the no, no becomes a yes, right? We don't do that. In that language, no, no, just is stronger than no. No, no, you, my feet, will never, ever wash into eternity is the language he uses. The same language is often translated as eternal life. He's saying, not into eternity. There is no, no way I'm letting you do. I'm not going to sit here and wait and understand later on. You're just not doing it. Or if he was all Australian, he might say, over my dead body. You and whose army, right? But it's an absolute negation, right? Jesus replies, unless I wash you, you'll have no part with me. Now that's a scary thing Jesus says to him. Peter's saying, no, not ever. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, our, our, you'll have no share in what I'm doing. You won't be a part of me and the kingdom that's coming. I've come down to take you with me. You won't let me wash you. You've excluded yourself. Unless I wash, you have no part with me. Then Peter beautifully says, Then Lord, Simon replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. When he gets it right, he gets it right. Um, but even here, he's slightly wrong. But he can't bear the idea of he doesn't. It just confuses him. But he can't bear the thought of being left out from what Jesus is on about. You know, at the end of John 6, I've been enjoying reading John in our um, the soap readings, but uh, in John 6, at the end of John 6, Jesus is saying some pretty strong, very powerful, wonderful things that people are finding them very offensive. And many people who are following him walk away when they hear what Jesus is saying about himself. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, do you also want to leave? And Simon Peter says back to him, Lord, to who can we go? You have the words of eternal life. I don't think he understands that bit of Jesus' teaching there either, but he understands this is the only place to be. We're confused, we're troubled, but this is, this is where it is. And so the thought of being cut off from Jesus, he says, no, wash, wash the hold of me. And then he gets corrected. Verse 10, Jesus says, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. They're two quite different words. You've had a, it's, it's like what you do before you, or in that culture, what you do when you went to a wedding or even church probably, You'd have a bath at home, nowhere near as good as our bath. One of the beauties of modern Western civilization is running water. Um, it's amazing. And uh, but it's, so that, however they do their second-rate baths, um, you have a bath before you go. But when you get there, there would be water and basin and towels ready for you. And if they had the appropriate servant, perhaps a servant to help you, and then perhaps some Clinique dramatically different moisturising lotion or something like that to soften up your feet. Jesus says, you've had a bath. All you need is your feet washed. See, Peter, you're clean, though not every one of you. So he's saying, Peter... He's clearly at this point, this whole thing is like an acted parable. He's doing the foot washing, not just as a sort of, just to make the night a little less tacky, but because it is a great picture of Jesus' relationship to you and the options that you and I have to make. He comes to be your servant. He comes to do for you what you desperately need. He comes to clean you up before God. 
not just to make your life a little bit of disciplined, but actually to make you clean before God. Josh read the verses from 1 John, which actually pick up exactly this idea. So we often speak about forgiveness of sins in terms of here is God's law, you've broken it, you're guilty, there's a punishment and there's a consequence, and that's right. But the other way that the Bible also speaks of it, sometimes side by side, is a way that our Islamic brothers and sisters um, speak more often than we do, and that is about being clean and being purified. That sense of being grotty and dirty that we feel sometimes. Sometimes when terrible things are done to people, they just go and have a shower, right? Because they just this feeling of being... Of being and so let me read you just from 1 John and remind you of the part that uh, Josh read earlier. See, this guy who wrote this letter, he was in the room and he wrote the gospel that we're looking at. He says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us or cleanses us from all sin. If we claim to be without... And this is talking to Christians. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Take away the filth. And that's the picture here. Jesus is the one who comes to wash you. Now, when you become a Christian and you turn to him and say, wash me, you are... That's pictured in baptism, isn't it? That's why water's involved. It's a great picture of washing. But then Jesus is aware of the fact, as you are, that since you become a Christian, you still do things that are grotty, that you regret, that you can hardly believe that you do it again and again. And that's the foot washing. That's why when we meet together at church, we have an opportunity to, to confess our sins. Because it, and sometimes that will be the most wonderful part of the service for you, and other times you'll be half away, half asleep, half awake. You know. But that's this sort of the washing of the feet, right? Sometimes for Christians, it's harder to believe that he washes our feet well than the initial forgiveness because we get so annoyed with ourselves that we're still sometimes falling for the same selfishness and sins a year, 10 years, 20 years down the road. But he is keen to wash our feet right, and to make us as clean as ever and free to walk across his white carpet. So that's what's going on with Peter. It's the question of washing. And that's, that's one of the great pictures of here. And that's this... Um, uh, a wonderful hymn that we sometimes sing. We sing it more often in the morning than here, but we sometimes sing it here. Let me read you a line from it. Uh, this is from uh, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. They're the, they're the words of the heart of someone who God's Holy Spirit has opened up their eyes to see something of the purity of God and our uh, lack of purity. Nothing in my hand, simply to your cross I cling. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. That's what Peter had to learn, that this is what Jesus is picturing, that the, the washing that we need and he keeps on giving. Uh, that's the great work that is worth reflecting. Have you had the full bath? Have you ever gone to Jesus and perhaps prayed that prayer, wash me, saviour? Right? I, need, I need cleansing big time. Or perhaps you just need to come back to God after some weeks or months or even longer of playing fast and loose with him. To come back to him, he is quick to forgive. Who did what to who? Peter said, what? 
and he learnt much. And lastly, for the Christians, for, for the disciples, we do what and why. Uh, there's lots of great verses when Jesus sits down in verse 12 until verse 17. Um, but I think verse 14 perhaps picks it up best. Verse 13, he says, look, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's right, because I am. Right? He's, got a, he's completely happy with us saying, you're the Lord, you're my teacher, I'm your pupil. Um, that's the relationship. You call me teacher and Lord, and so I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Here's the logic of Jesus. He does this in a number of places. I have done this for you. You do it for me. No, no, no. That's not what he says. Repeatedly he says, I've done this for you. You do that for others. The vertical controls the horizontal, which is why Christians are remarkably free. People in our culture and Christians, if we're not careful, we're completely determined by the people that we meet. If someone's nice to us, we're nice to them. If someone's rude to us, we give them a bit of mercy. And if it goes on long enough, then we're going to be rude to them, right? Because we're completely controlled by the horizontal. No, no, that's not, that's not how Christians live. Part of the Jesus, I've washed your feet. He does not ask you to do anything for him. Of course, he takes what you do for his brothers and sisters as done for him. But that's not the, so he says, I've washed your feet. I've been, I've been the lowliest possible slave and servant. I've done what seems almost inappropriate. You should wash one another's feet. This is the mark of the Christian community, right? that we serve one another. Jesus is the servant king, right? and we are a servant community. That's who we are. That's how we live. So we are to serve. Now, verse 17 is um, absolutely crucially essential. Let me read it to you. At the very end of this section, Jesus speaking. Now that you know these things... You'll be blessed if you do them. There is no blessing from God in just knowing about this stuff. Even about being able to articulate just what an amazing thing it is that Jesus has done. Blessing from God comes, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Now what I find intriguing, it seems that Jesus thinks that even the disciples who were there in the room with him might know it, theoretically, but not do it. And that's utterly worthless, if not worse, to know what God is like and to know how he's called us to live and ignore it and treat his teaching and his way of doing things with contempt. Jesus serves, and so his disciples, those who learn from him, are called to serve. We are to learn from him. And, we are to, and we're gonna, I think we're going to be learning about service until our dying days. Often our service will change too. In various periods of life you can do things, then your physical situation changes and you can't do some things you used to do. But you'll be finding ways to serve because we are servant people. We're not, you know, ordinary Australians who occasionally do an act of service. That's to miss something. No, 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 we are servants. When I came to St Matt's, I, I enjoyed the fact that uh, I think I was the only minister on the staff then. And um, no, that's not true. There was another lady who was part-time. But there were about four car parks that said ministry for the ministry staff or something like that. And they were always full. And, and I thought, isn't it lovely that the people at St. Matt's understand that they are ministers, right? They've got that right, right? Because we're all... Minister just means servant, right? So when Andrew Vella stood up and said, I'm one of the ministers of the church, I don't know what you thought. 
But what he's saying is, I'm one of the servants. I'm one of the formalized servants here. So he is your servant. I am your servant. Now, you might think, well, you're not doing a very good job. There's things I'd like you to do. But this is a bigger question. I am your servant, and I know I am your servant. I also know that you're my servant, because we're a servant community. But I serve you a little bit like perhaps the way that a doctor might or a parent might. Perhaps they're not good pictures. But a loving doctor won't always do what their patient wants them to do. That's certainly true with physiotherapists, right? They inflict all sorts of pain on you because they love you. I'm not into giving you pain. But I'm just saying that you serve in the way that you understand God wants you to. But my priority and the priority of any Christian is how can I be of use to you? Not how can you be of use to me? Now, that is deeply countercultural. Everything, we're all selfish and sinful, but our culture has almost taught us it's your right, in fact, it's your moral duty to make people dance to your tune. And if they won't dance to your tune, cut them off. You don't need toxic people in your life. Servant leadership is what it's about, and we need to keep learning this until our dying day, that we are here for each other, to serve each other, to do the unthinkable, to wash feet, which is the lowest of the low. That is the highest position you can be in. As the great Deal Moody said, the measure of a person is not how many servants they have, but how many people they serve. That's the mark of greatness. So we can't tell who's the greatest person in this church you just can't, because we don't know who's serving. Because a lot of service, like upfront type stuff, it, it can be done for bad motives. Right? We can be doing stuff that looks nice, but really it's about our own ego and things like that. Uh, but off, I don't want to make a big deal of it, but I think the people who I like sometimes dropping in here on Saturday and seeing who's cleaning the church. I love the number of PhDs that they're in here vacuuming the place and cleaning out dunnies. And that's exactly where people with PhDs belong. But th- these are... These are <laughs> These are, these are people who've done an enormous amount of study and have massively oversized brains and an appalling level of self-discipline, and, and they get these PhDs. And they're in here vacuuming and cleaning the toilets. And so they should be. The Lord of glory washed feet. And these weren't even good Christians. They're rubbish Christians. He's going to say to them in the next couple of verses, you will all desert me. You, Judas, whose feet he washed... You will betray me. And you, Peter, will three times publicly say, I don't know him. So these are not a very impressive bunch. Yet he gets on his knees and washes their feet. We don't love people and serve people in church or anywhere else because they deserve it. That's to be a slave to their goodness. We do it because that is how God treats us and we want to be Christ-like Yea, even God-like at that point. That's what it's saying here. I went to a conference once, and when I got to the beginning, amongst the booklets, they gave us a belt like this. Uh, that's a bloke whose name I can't say. Kena Jigoro, I think his name is. He's the inventor of judo. I've seen great pictures of him as a very old man chucking great bulky young men across the room because that's part of what judo is. It's using other people's force uh, against them. And he worked, he worked out that discipline. And you white belt, green belt, other, other belts, and that you conclude. As a, and he had any number of black belts, and he was excellent. But it is said, and we're not quite sure if this is true, but it's a great point anyhow. It is said that when he was buried, when he was heading up to his death, he said, I want you to bury me in my white belt. 
right? because we are always trying to learn. Right? And that is exactly the position of the Christian. If you're sitting here in this building, you've been a Christian for 20 or 30 years, you've heard this before. I don't care if you've heard it before. I hope you have heard it before a million times before. But the question is, are we living it? Are you trying to find more and more areas where you can more deeply serve? Whether it be at, at, at church, even at the home. Also, our whole thing is to be we're servants. We're not just ordinary people who do the occasional act of service. Like a selfish person who occasionally writes a check for the Salvation Army. That's not what it's about. And life is about learning how to serve better and better, more and more. And that's where our joy is found in the end, in being a servant. Many of you all know about the great William Booth. Uh, William Booth is the man who, along with his magnificent wife, founded the Salvation Army, uh, which is not a social welfare organisation. To some people, it is, it is, it is a church that specialised in getting people saved. But they organised themselves as an army. So the ministers were called officers and things like that. And it, it really did change the world. And it's highly respected often for its charitable work, although that's not the heart of its being. But it scattered all the way into it, well and truly into Australia before his death, and all the way up and down through America and all through the world. And at one stage, there was a big conference in, in America where people had come up from, from Mexico, the US, down from Canada, I think it was to Chicago for this big conference of, uh, to, you know, to work out where they go next with this. William Booth was coming across. It was, they were very excited to have the founder. He was a very inspiring man, the general next to God, he was called. And, um, but he, he was old and he got sick. He, he travelled across the Atlantic but just was too sick to take the train trip up. So he sent them a telegram. And people were very excited. To, what has the general got to say to us? And when they opened up, it was just one word. Where is it? Not that one, not that one, not that one, that one. That was just one word, others, others. When you love people, when you become Christ-like, you live for others. Your agenda is not to get others to meet your needs, to make you happy, but to find your joy in serving others, in laying down your life for others. That's what Jesus does, and that is why we do it, is because he has done it to us. Right? You've experienced his service, that he died for you. He cleansed you of your sins. He repeatedly forgives you of your sins. He lives for you. We live for others. That's who we're called to be. It's a deeply revolutionary position to take. Just before we throw it open for some questions, um, here at church, right? Whether you're on a roster for something or not, it doesn't matter. We come to church as a community of servants. You come to church with your sleeves rolled up to seek who you can love. Uh, I think it's easy to do, and I'm not having to go at anyone here, but I think it's just easy to do to come to church with the same sort of attitude that I go to the movies with Alison. We choose the time that suits us, the theatre that we like the most in terms of its, its um, decor, uh, and we expect the air conditioning to be perfect the seats to be comfortable, the service to be quick, right? And if it's not, we might complain rudely, right? et cetera, et cetera. Now, it's altogether possible to accidentally come to church as a lord of the manor, as a lady of the house, as a consumer, rather than coming as a servant to a servant community, to be looking to who can I love, who can I listen to, who can I care for, who can I help and bless, 
I'm not saying that with any desire to get rosters or anything filled as irrelevant to that. Right? You can do all sorts of official ways of helping, and that's a good thing. But whoever we are, if we belong to Christ, we're to be serving. You know, I met this guy called Michael. He might have actually been at the conference where I was given that white belt. Um, and he told about an old man at his church. He was at this church, I think it was a Chinese church, and, and they would, they'd, he would, this one man would pick up a whole lot of kids to practice for the choir for the morning service. And he would pick them up in his Rolls Royce. Um, which is, uh, you may be such a nice person, you don't know what a Rolls Royce is, but it's just a ridiculously wealthy car, right? Um, huge, quiet as anything. In fact, they make the new ones, they artificially make them make noise because they've got a, the engineering so perfect, they're completely quiet, you don't hear nothing. But they found human beings are a bit nervous with that quietness, so they artificially produce noise so we can relax a little bit. They're luxurious, they're magnificent. And this Chinese, very wealthy Chinese businessman would go and pick up about five or six kids, drop them at church, and they'd practice in the choir for about an hour. Years later, Michael discovered what this bloke did between picking up these kids every Sunday morning and taking them to church early. He's a multimillionaire. He would clean up the bathrooms in the church. Right? It was a hall that was used for all sorts of things, and he would... This, multi-millionaire, unbelievably competent man, having picked up these kids, would then clean the dunnies, right? Was he the greatest man in the church? Maybe, there may have been, he just had the servant heart. And Michael discovered it by accident years and years later because he was still doing exactly the same thing, picking up kids, taking them to the choir, cleaning the toilets. That's greatness, according to Jesus, it's being a servant. And it's like that when you're at home, right? that you will be a servant at home. Now, there's big topics here, aren't there? Um, children who become Christians will become servants at home. They will help. They will not need to be whipped into the kitchen to help in various ways. Or they might until they repent and become a little bit more Christ-like. Right? And that is one of the most... They say with you know, children who have met Christ and their parents haven't, Children are more likely to see their parents come to know God with a tea towel in their hand than with a Bible in their hand, right? It's that sort of transformation. Husbands not to be lazy. This is another topic. Not all husbands are lazy, but I think it is one of the default positions of males around the world. And you see that in cultures where water has to be collected from the well. In almost every culture that I've ever watched or seen pictures of, who gets the water from the well? The women, why? Because men have got bigger biceps and if they don't do it, it'll be trouble for them. That's the historical background. Right? So the ones that are stronger do not go and get the water. Who sh Clearly, in terms of the way God designed us, we should. Has the culture been doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years? Yes. When a person meets Christ, that may change. To not be lazy, but to be up-serving. That's what it is to be, a, you know. So when... when Alice and I got married, she got a slave. I'm her slave, right? Yes, master, or mistress, right? Yes, yes. and that my job is, is, is to make her life as easy and as healthy as I can. When I'm tired, when I'm happy, when I'm not, that's my calling. And Christian husbands have it especially laid on them, even more than wives, because we're told to love our wives in the same way Jesus did and lay down our lives. To be servants at home, to be servants at church, to be servants wherever we are. That's what it is, to be a disciple. Right? That's where freedom is found. 
And uh, that's what Jesus is doing here on this last event. Well, let me stop there before we pray and say, any questions on this <coughs> magnificent acted parable? All right. Um, the crucial verse, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the uh, clarity of what you do and say. Thank you that you don't say nice things and do other things. Thank you that you were the great servant, that you did rise up uh, and do the unthinkable and to wash these guys' feet. Thank you that you did the unthinkable and died for us, that you can cleanse us and forgive us and forgive us fresh and beautiful day by day. Thank you for that. Thank you for your patience with us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would transform us from the inside. Our natural selfishness and our silly society encourage us to look after ourselves. Help us, Lord, to learn what it means for us to give ourselves to each other in joyful service. We pray for transformation in your name. Amen.